Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast often deals with graphic, violent and horrific crimes against men, women and children. Please listen at your own discretion. If you are affected by any of the themes featured in this episode, please contact your local support charity. It was an initiation into the triads, as you probably know. They are operating just like the mafia, Italian mafia, as triads in Hong Kong. The person I was told uh, um, belonged to the same triad group as the ring leader. Join our group or else you will be beaten. Seriously. We're using him to be our detective in a sense. Well, well, we can't tread, they can tread. Someone was over here talking. He bragged about being worth uh, half a million dollars, you know. He's confessed. He said, I did it. I did that case. I knew in my bones that this was the right man. And he exuded absolute evil. This was Braemar Hill. Catching Worms, a Hong Kong true crime podcast. Months had passed since that day that Nicola Myers and Kenneth McBride took a walk up Braemar Hill, only for their bodies to be found the next day, bound and brutally beaten. There had been twists and turns along the way, with an early tip-off to a gang in Quarry Bay that led nowhere, to profiling and interviewing a known group in Kowloon with a history of attacks that fitted the bill. Yet the police were no closer to finding the Braemar Hill killers. Detective Nori McKillop had not given up hope. I was always very, very optimistic, and I'll tell you why. It's because I believed that there was a minimum of three people involved uh, in, in the killings. And when you have more than one person involved in the killing, there's always a, there's a strong possibility that one of them will speak. One of them, one of the perpetrators in their heart or hearts believe that they're less culpable than the others. And sooner or later, and in my own experience over the years, someone talks and someone is overheard talking in the most unlikely places like a tea house or whatever, just careless talk, because there's usually a ringleader when there's more than one person 
involved in a murder like this. And as I said, the, the one who feels he's less culpable, whether he's less culpable or not, is a matter for the court. But um, that's when chit-chat starts. And hopefully chit-chat is picked up by someone. So they were waiting, waiting for chit-chat. But Hong Kong isn't a place for idle talk. So what were the next steps? The investigation needed fuel, and that fuel would only come from leads and tip-offs from the public. Although months had passed, Hong Kong was still in shock. Nothing like this had ever happened to the expat community, and they wanted the killers found. Now, you probably recall there was a, there was a reward for, the, the, uh, for this case. Uh, the, the donor of the reward remains anonymous to this day. Um, uh, so there was quite a substantial amount offered um, as a reward for information leading to the arrest of the killers. And uh, How much do you think it was, would be today, roughly? Like, I don't know if you know the maths, but it's not really about that. Like, in terms of, like, over a million? Millions. Millions, millions yeah. Because so 500,000, it's a huge amount, yeah. Mm-hmm. 500,000 is you can, I believe you can buy a flat. Of course, nowadays you can, you can, uh, you know, get a flat for at least, uh, you know, ten million dollars. Hong Kong. In order to help the investigation, an anonymous Hong Kong businessman made a substantial donation to be given to anyone who could provide critical information that might lead to a conviction. But a public baited by fortunes for information can open up the doors to conspiracy and fallacious confessions. A special hotline for the case had been set up, and that phone began to ring. Was this problematic? I wanted to understand the concerns from Detective Trevor Collins. And off the back of that hotline, or or off the back of your investigations, there was a reward offered for information. With that amount of information coming in, was was that... a good thing at the time? Were you worried about the amount of information that you'd be receiving? It, it, it makes life more difficult. Obviously, you've got lots and lots of the information. You're trying to sort of uh, go through it to to wheedle out the rubbish and the good stuff from the good stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's good that you, you do get more than, than less. And then the anonymous donator donation uh, made a big difference, of course. So how this would work traditionally is that every call would be logged on a card and every card would be placed in boxes in a big, literal filing system. They also had information coming in from police stations across Hong Kong who were on the alert for any suspects with similar characteristics to the gang profile they had built. But to locate and select which card to deal with next was a highly manual process. The detectives on this case wanted to work in a different way, so commenced the first computerized investigation in Hong Kong. So we were, we were stuck with a whole mass of a huge volume of uh, information because of that. And uh, we had a couple of guys, one that worked for me as senior inspector, who was a bit of a computer buff in the early days. He suggested that perhaps we could set up some sort of database, as it would be called now, I suppose. And we managed to get the assistance from... Uh, Hong Kong Telecom, and they gave us, uh, lent us six computers, basic computers, just so we could have people 24 hours inputting uh, information. And then one master computer where this database system could sort of 
pick out people that were stopped or were identified as being involved in uh, perhaps sexually motivated uh, crimes such as you know uh, uh, rapes in, in, in parks and such like. So with the computers whirring and information flooding in, they were just waiting for that gold dust tip-off. Gangs in Hong Kong are affiliated with triads. Triads are members of criminal organisations or secret societies that are shrouded in mystery. These organised gangs have wielded influence in Chinese society for centuries. Following Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in the 1970s, many triads relocated to the British colony of Hong Kong. Famed for controlling the illicit trades in gambling, drugs and prostitution, they have a fearsome reputation. However, their role in Hong Kong society was more nuanced. There were hundreds of different triad groups with various affiliations and their own particular code of loyalty and brotherhood. To get a better understanding of these career criminals, I asked Inspector Joseph Sanchez. He grew up in Hong Kong and is no stranger to the gang operations on the streets. The triads, um, they're different. Many, many triads in Hong Kong those days. Now, there are only a few because, to be honest, many of them feared the Chinese government. <laughs> so, yes, the triad is a bit like uh, suppressed in a sense, but not too, because they will operate anyway. They are in the dark. So, um, yes, those days there were a lot of segments, little segments. You mean names of this triad? For someone who doesn't know what a triad is, or or what what is a triad? Oh, yeah. What, no, what no. is all locals know, even uh, foreign foreign visitors. I mean, from a Hong Kong view, they know. Triad, triad is like how do I put it? It's a long story. It's about history. They used to protect the government, and now they are all making use of the government to make money, even bad money, illegal monies. So was a lot of the crimes. Yes, they are all connected, all connected. Vice activities, which means in Hong Kong it is dangerous drugs. Uh, you know, uh, those days we still have opium. And up to now we still have these cracks and things. And uh, also, what was that? Um, yeah, even the disposal of stolen properties, they are all triad related. Dangerous drugs, vice and illegal gambling, they operate casinos. So, yeah, underground casinos. They are operating just like the mafia, Italian mafia, as in uh, tri- as triads in Hong Kong. So what the association was is they will usually send out a, a person who can lead a few people only. This person, I'll call it person A, he will approach you and then said, Come on, join our group or else you will be beaten. Seriously. And then, in Chinese too. So, um, in, they usually recruit you in a, in, a, in a playground, you know, public playground, like a football pitch or something like that, open to public. Uh, they will target boys like 14, 15 years old. And then sometimes it happened in private schools. Private schools in Hong Kong is different from the concept of private schools in the UK. <laughs> they are just some, you know, operating on a business registration certificate those days. They don't even have a license. So 
students who are in there, most of them are tribe members, we were told. Okay, so like in, if there are 20 students in the class, you can expect like 10 to 15 of them are tribe members or tribe related. Okay, my brother is already a tribe member, so I don't want to join you. So they can give excuses like this. So when they were caked into the society, into the association, they, there will be a, a ceremony for it to formalize your identity as a normal member. Okay, you will pay uh, some money, just a little bit, to make sure that you are a member of them. Okay, a sort of consideration, I suppose. So they will start, you know, kicking members, a lot of them. So one time we were told that there were tens of thousands of uh, tribe members in Hong Kong. Tens of thousands, like three times to four times of the Royal Hong Kong Police um, strength at that time, those days. I asked journalist Tony Flores what the general public thought of triads. Were people at the time in Hong Kong generally afraid of the triads? Oh, yes, yes. They're generally afraid because uh, um, basically they're bullies, you know. If you offend them, they'll give, you know, they'll just do anything. So was this crime triad related? Had Nicola and Kenneth got caught up in something they couldn't get out of? For Detective Nori McKillop, this made no sense. There's always suspicions that triads are involved um, in, in all kinds of cases. Um, uh, but there was no there was no suspicion in this particular case that Nicola and Kenneth uh, were targeted by triads. There had been there had been absolutely no reason to target them. There was also speculation about it being connected with the, in these days, 1984, there, there was bad blood between uh, China and and, uh, and Hong Kong and the British government over the handover negotiations, etc. So there was speculation that somehow that wasn't, that was involved in it. But we, we, we ourselves at the centre of the investigation just ignored this kind of conjecture. We dealt with the evidence. There was no evidence of any uh, triad involvement. And when I mean triad involvement, I mean the, the, these victims being targeted by triads. With all these speculations, Detective Nori McKillop's theory was about to pay off. Now, after the, 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 we, we discounted the, the Kowloon gang, which were, were really pretty high on our suspect list, but after I interrogated them, I was pretty convinced that they had, although they, they were convicted of many, many brutal crimes and um, sexual offences and robberies, um, um, they weren't involved in this case. But it was some months later that um, someone was overheard talking. And from the back of his uh, uh, donation offer, you received a bit of a tip-off. Um so how did you progress from there? How did you progress from that, that first initial tip that was received? Uh, right. So the, the initial information came in and then we uh, had to try and verify it. This is Detective Trevor Collins. The source of the information initially was a bit reluctant to let it be known. He just thought he could give the information and that would be it and he'd get the reward. It doesn't work that way, obviously. Interview him, find out the circumstances. What did he overhear? Where was he when he overheard this? Who was in the group that were 
where were they, who was there, who was in the group, describe them, uh, try and get close to them, go back to them again, uh, find out more information and it's gradually build up. In fact, we're, we're using him to be our detective in a sense, but with strict guidance uh, and getting the information that we can't get ourselves. We can't send a detective in there to do what he's doing because you know, we would stand out. Uh, the detective would stand out. So it was quite sensitive. So we, we call it informant handling. Uh, we have we actually have we actually had, had professional informant handlers in the police force who were trained uh, to 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 handle informers like this and deal with them sensitively and get as much information and essentially use them as as an arm of like a detective but under strict guidance. Like other organised crime groups, such as the Japanese Yakuza, triads have elaborate initiation ceremonies. Traditionally, a typical ceremony was said to take place beneath an altar dedicated to Guan Yu and include an animal sacrifice. After drinking a mixture of wine and blood, usually from a chicken, the new member would pass beneath the Arch of Swords and take their oath as a triad member. However, by the 1980s, initiation was not always so ritualised, yet new members were still expected to prove themselves, as teacher Chris Force recalls. This was an initiation procedure that just really, really went wrong, uh, under the evil eye of Pang. The person I was told uh, um, belonged to the same tribe group as the ringleader. Journalist Tony Flores of this uh, particular crime. And that's how he um, uh, sought him out and told the police that, you know, they suspect this guy's acting (laughs) suspiciously or whatever. The ringleader he speaks of was 24-year-old Pang Shun Yi. He was a member of the Fuk Yi Hing Triad Society and was overheard at a triad dinner, as Detective Trevor Collins recalls. You know, you get the spring, spring dinners and such like. Uh, and, and they do have dinners for for a number of reasons, you know, birthdays, whatever. It's just like normal people. They, they'd have a, a function. Everyone would be invited. You've got the boss there who wants to show his power all the time. He likes to call in all the troops. And, of course, the Fuki Hing was it's not a particularly big tribe society, but uh, they had the dinner and, uh, yeah, Young Pang came up and, and asked for help. Apparently, uh, the rumours then was that he, he, was, he was bragging he was worth, he bragged about being worth uh, half a million dollars, you know. And uh, the triad member, a friend of his, um, uh, gave information to the police and uh, that's how they caught him. And uh, it took a bit of uh, cajoling to get him to finally agree. He was in the middle middle ranks of the triad society and uh, it was at a dinner where the first defendant, Pang, came up to the, the main table and asked for help because he'd done that case. And, and of course, they, they thought he was joking to start when he, he got a carton of cigarettes and a couple hundred dollars, I think it was, and, you know, told to go away and keep quiet. And is it unusual that you would get someone from a triad supplying that kind of information to the police? Yeah, very, very unusual. I mean, it's the, you know, they take the oath of secrecy and the rest of it and uh, certainly don't uh, roll over on your... Your associates. I mean, it's it's one of the things that uh, to gain notoriety and promotion within triads is to to be convicted of an offence. And obviously, the more serious the offence, the more notoriety you get. 
they're certainly not going to make it, make an issue that so he's done this case so we'll we'll get him banged up because then he can be really famous he's a follower of mine and i'll get face as well it was purely because of the money the amount of money involved it's the first time that that amount of money had ever been been offered because i think this that was one of the things that that struck me as unusual because i think i would think if they were in the same triad group it would be unusual for someone to 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 rap to tell do you think that's unusual? Yes, but I think at the time, uh, someone had offered a $500,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the person of persons. And at that time, $500,000 was a lot of money. I think really the tip was, without the tip, I really, I, I also didn't expect the police would ever be able to crack the case. It could be anybody. So many people got to the hill. And they, and they interviewed thousands and thousands of people and they, didn't get, and they got nowhere, although they got some information, but they got nowhere. So this $500,000 reward was a game changer. They had the tip. They had a name, Pang Shangyi. But now they needed to arrest the full gang to get to the truth. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As far as the police knew, Nicola and Kenneth had no connections to the triads, no connections to Pang Shang Yi, and had simply gone to Braemar Hill to study on that sunny Hong Kong Saturday in April. Star students, passionate young people full of life, 
that day they met their death. Was their fate a matter of pure coincidence? Detective Nori McKillop needed an arrest to get to the full story. His key was a mid-level tribe member from the Fuk Yi Hing Triad Society, known as the informant. A person who became our informant and came forward the inf with the information that he had overheard um, uh, a person uh, boasting about uh, being involved in the murder of Europeans and uh, stealing the shoes. And he followed um, uh, that person to the approximate place where he lived. And it turned out he lived in a squatter area. There were still some squatter areas around in, in 1984. Although Murray had cleared out a huge amount of the, the squatter areas when I arrived in the, in the early 70s. But there were still quite a few squatter areas around. Detective Nori McKillop continues to describe what these squatter areas were like. Yeah, wooden huts in the hillside, tin huts, not not very not very far from where the murders took place, not not a huge distance, uh, easily walkable, but very difficult for police to get in and out without the very tight knit communities. So it doesn't mean these people are bad people because they live in squatter areas. By by no means, they just lack public housing. And the kids go to school just as clean as any other kids go to school. You've probably seen them. I've seen them in the walled city uh, going to school in a pristine white uniforms. Uh, this is no different. So it doesn't mean that because people live in the squat area that they're in any way criminals. But he lived in that squat area. The police had been searching this area of Hong Kong for months. They had gone door to door speaking to everyone who would have been in that area at the time. On a map, they had drawn an ever-widening circle around the scene. This squatter's area was inside that circle, yet no reports had come in, and Pang Shang Yi's name was not on their suspect list. Although it took us a long time to finally catch the guys, we were unfortunate in that concentric circle sort of checking we'd done. We'd bypassed Pang's, uh, where, we, where he was living. This is Detective Trevor Collins. Which was in the, uh, in the Mount Butler uh, mine area, quarry area. And they had a hut inside the, uh, the quarry area, where as far as it was, it was the caretaker. And uh, it's something we, we actually over, overlooked. And it may, may have made life a lot easier, who knows. So you mentioned that you, his location was was almost missed by the investigation. Was that because it was such a poor area? Why was it? Why was that area? Missed? Well, because it's not really a res residential area. It's uh, you know you've got Mount Butler, massive government quarters, uh, and then you've got another couple of buildings in front of Mount Butler, and then the, then there's a, the roadway comes the road comes to a dead end, and then you have a a country path which goes round, and you can walk all the way round, and it eventually comes to Braemar Hill go all the way down, you know, all the way, you know, sulky one down there. Uh, so patrols were sent out to interview people found on those walkways. Uh, but where this quarry was, it's quite near to where the police open air range course uh, there. But it's a quarry type, uh, it's an old quarry type place. And inside this quarry type place, is a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hut type place that... Uh, Pang's uh, uh, family used to live in. So close, yet 
they had missed the house of the gang's ringleader. Pang's proximity to the scene provides another motive, as journalist Tony Flores speculates. Eventually, we got information that they arrested the, the uh, ringleader, and he lived in Quarry Bay, just on the other side of the country park. Uh, I think, I believe that was why he ordered that the two teenagers be killed, because he was worried about being, uh, of being recognized, you know. From Bainmar Hill to uh, where he lived in Quarry Bay, I think it was several kilometres away. The police did finally arrest Pang, but it wasn't a fast process. They couldn't just storm into the squatters' area and arrest one man when they knew... There would be three or more people, we thought, from, from the, the way the bodies were found, uh, from the injuries, from the fact, the fact that Kenneth, despite his arm being in a sling, uh, would have put up a terrific struggle. And, and Nicola also, and uh, she was naked. It was quite clear that there was, there was, a, there was a sexual attack on her. Uh, so it would be very difficult for even two people to handle two fit young people like Kenneth and Nicola. Um, so we're looking at a minimum of three people, probably more. So how would they identify the entire gang from this one tip-off? We, we didn't. We, we just had a nickname at that time. Um, but we had a squatter area where he might be living. So we put that area under surveillance, 24-hour um, surveillance, night and day, with night viewing and uh, trying to identify this person. And eventually we did, and we did a lot of research. Um, and over the next few months, being patient, um, we managed to identify other suspects who were part of Pang Yi's group. Detective Nori McKillop. By cultivating the informer and then sort of leading him into uh, trying to get more identification, get the proper name, find out where the people live, uh, get more information, etc., etc. Over the over a matter of weeks and a month or so, uh, we managed to get sufficient information through that informer, which enabled us to identify what we believe was the whole gang. The informant was a mid-level triad member who had his eyes on the prize. And thank God, maybe because of this person who offered the reward that lure the, the person out to, 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 give, to give information. Journalist Tony Flores. So how do you picture this gang in your head? It was the 1980s. Were they driving fast cars? Tough guys with tattoos and weapons at their disposal. High-level criminals moving in circles with the rich and famous. This isn't a movie, and this isn't the type of gang they found. I don't know if you recall, you probably weren't in Hong Kong at the time, Susie, but in the old days, you know, when you got a taxi to the Star Ferry, quite often there'd be a group of uh, kids, youngsters, would open the doors looking for a, a tip for opening taxi doors. Well, they were a group that hang around Star Ferry. They were part of this group that were that could be found hanging around staff ferry opening opening taxi doors. So there, there were virtually the youngsters in the group, you could call them street urchins, to use an old-fashioned term. But Pang Shan Yi was no street urchin. He was older, and one of the other group was actually older than him. Mr John Haynes Esquire represented one of the younger members of the gang, Chang Yao Hang, at his appeal, 
and sheds more light on the daily lives of this type of gang. He'd come from a, a busted home and he, his father, his new stepfather didn't like him and he'd been chucked out of the house so he was homeless at the age of 15. And the only way he got any money to get food was by opening doors for taxis at the Martau. And of course, those people who were allowed to open doors and get tips were only allowed to do it by the local triad, who at the end of the day came and took all their money, but gave them food and lodging. And this displaced poor teenager was living that kind of life. And um, uh, his boss man, he told me once, which I thought graphically illustrated the difference, he said, yes, they gave us some kanji every morning in our lodging, but the bosses had meat and stuff in their kanji and we only had rice. <laughs> I just unimaginable. So we developed the information through the informant um, and managed to positively identify uh, the names, uh, even the addresses of virtually all the, the gang. So on the day when we conducted our, decided to make our arrests, we, we used the whole of the organised series crime bureau. The entire OCB, because, as Detective Nori McKillop explains, it was very important that these arrests happened at the same time. Uh, when we were pretty sure that we had them all, as we, we call it, housed, they're all housed. We know where each one of them is at a specific time. So we could do simultaneous uh, raids, as we call it, uh, simultaneous arrests. So we, we didn't want to arrest one, couldn't find the others, and then the, the others would become aware of an arrest, so they'd all talk, and then they would um, they'd get the stories all in line, etc. So it's quite important to get simultaneous arrests. Do you feel like you get a sense when you meet a potential suspect very quickly, yes. very early on? It's extraordinary that you actually say this to me. Uh, but it's happened to me several times. And this was one of the cases where it did happen to me. Pang Shan Yi, who was when he was eventually arrested, I would say he was the ringleader of the group. My team went to arrest him, and as, uh, we, we rounded up the whole gang eventually, uh, almost simultaneously. Anyway, I was, my team was looking for Pang Shan Yi. So we went into, when we were into where he was hiding, uh, the moment I set eyes on him, um, I knew instinctively that this was the right person. And uh, it, it, it was quite creepy, actually. This only happened to me one other time, in one other case. But um, I was just convinced, of course, that wouldn't stand up in a court in law. Of course, I wouldn't expect it to. But I knew in my bones that this was the right man. And he exuded absolute evil. Detective Nori McKillop's team went to arrest Pang Sheng Yi. I asked him to talk me through how the arrest went down. Oh, we just went straight into the house. And uh, I, I always remember he, he, had, he had his back to me when I went in. And uh, I, I knew immediately, because um, we didn't have a photograph of him, I, I knew immediately just by instinct. Uh, it's not something I would say in evidence in court, but I knew this is the man. And he was cautioned immediately. And he, he didn't say anything. He refused to, refused to uh, uh, cooperate with us in any way. Um, even with his back to me, when I first saw him, he was a very peculiar-looking chap. He had a very, very long body and uh, quite short legs. For the, uh, um, 
but very, very muscular and very, very evil looking person. He just exudes, exudes evil. That's the best way I can describe it. Pang was the ringleader, but they still had to make four other arrests that day. The second arrested person uh, was working uh, and it came and, and we just suddenly found out that he was at work. So that's why I, I was in I was in the office at the time and uh, just grabbed whoever was available and uh, dashed down to uh, uh, Johnson Road and, uh, and he was there at work. There was a security officer in a building. In fact, one of one of the arrested persons um, was arrested just opposite police headquarters. Um, he was actually a security guard, and he was the one that was actually when he was arrested, he was wearing Kenneth's shoes. I mean, there was nothing spectacular about him. There was nothing, uh, you know, that uh, out of the ordinary. He was there in his security guard's uniform, the building building security guard. We didn't know what forensic evidence we might have. We got Kenneth's shoes, and um, uh, Dave Clark, one of the brilliant forensic scientists, was able to show that, that Kenneth had a particular pattern in his shoe wear, inside and outside his shoes, and that this person who had been arrested who was wearing Kenneth's shoes had actually imposed his shoe pattern on top of Kenneth's shoe pattern when he was wearing Kenneth's shoes over a period of time. So he was able to prove in court that um, by, by, by comparing the shoe patterns of Kenneth and also his, the arrested person's shoe patterns, that um, he had actually been wearing Kenneth's shoes for some several months. So that was pretty crucial evidence. Caught red-handed wearing the shoes of the boy he had murdered. This was Tam Seifun, aged just 20 years old at the time. As forensic specialist Dr Robert Green explains... All of these little clues are vital in bringing a case together. When we're looking to build a, you know, a forensic picture, um, we don't often just build it on, on one form of evidence. So, you know, it, it's a much stronger picture if we can have, you know, some fiber evidence. If we have some blood pattern analysts, um, you know, if we have some finger mark evidence, if we have some footwear evidence, uh, it, it all comes together. So, you know, we, we need to build that that jigsaw with as many pieces as we can. A lot of people were, were really happy, uh, you know, that, well, they got the Brain My Hill Killers. Police got the Brain My Hill Killers. They were very happy. As Tony Flores reports, the Hong Kong public were over the moon with the arrests. But for the police officers at the heart of the operation, the arrests were just the first step. I was very, very concerned at that time because um, it's one thing to arrest people and get a headline, say, oh, solve the case, but that's not my priority. My priority is to get a conviction, and not only a conviction, but a conviction that would fail on appeal. Uh, that if if the conviction was appealed, the appeal would fail, and ultimately we would we would we would win win in the very end and get the full conviction of all the perpetrators. Now, that involved very careful. Uh, adherence to all the rules um, which would be applicable in court for arresting, uh, interrogating, using the judge's rules, as we call them. And there's no possibility of the case falling apart because some stupid detective thinks he's going to be a hero and, and uses physical violence totally unnecessarily on a prisoner, things of that nature. 
If we got a confession, I wanted to see that confession upheld in court, not thrown out in the voir as we call it, a trial within a trial, to decide whether the confession is um, is admissible in evidence or not. And quite often, if the if the rules are not followed, these confessions are thrown out. I didn't want to see these people walk free because of some stupidity in the way the case was handled during the arrests. Anybody we arrested would be brought back and we'd set up a system where we had a senior officer plus a local officer to do the interviewing because we knew there'd be battle at court because of the, uh, the lack of the senior crime evidence. Uh, we used some pretty, in these days, innovative techniques. Also, I insisted that the interviews would be recorded. It never, it never happened in Hong Kong before. It was coming in in the UK, video recording and uh, or um, audio recording of interviews, etc. And this was a, this, my idea was to safeguard the interviews if we got a confession, and um, that they would be for the first time ever they would be uh, uh, they would be audio recorded. Next time on Catching Worms, The Confessions. He's confessed, he said. I did it. I did that case. In their words, have some fun. Uh, Pang was number one, Tam was number two. Uh, of course, it, it turned into a killing frenzy. Uh, the others were just very, very young kids. Uh, she would have found it difficult to scream out. It was just a senseless, senseless murder. of Nicola and Kenneth. The school set up the Nicola Myers and Kenneth McBride Memorial Fund. The fund aims to support underprivileged sixth formers from across Hong Kong. If you would like to give to the fund, please see the information in the show description. This has been a Create Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Instagram at CatchingWormsHK. With special thanks to Detective Nori McKillop, Detective Trevor Collins, Chris Force, former teacher at Island School, John Haynes, Esquire, Forensic Specialist Dr. Robert Green, Inspector Joseph Sanchez, and journalist Tony Flores. And thank you for listening. Catching worms. Jok chong. This term means to get yourself into trouble, causing unnecessary difficulties. It may seem like an odd phrase, but this slang is often used as an abbreviation of the full saying jok chong yap si fat. That involves putting said worms up your rear end which, to anyone's imagination, definitely spells trouble indeed. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.